You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Our desire is to honor and share the best parts of the Christian contemplative traditions so that this collective wisdom might serve the flourishing of humanity, all beings, and all of creation. My name is Ben Kesey, and I lead the development team at the Center for Action and Contemplation. I want to thank all of you who are generous donors, giving freely and cheerfully to make this work possible. If you've been impacted by these podcast conversations and are inspired to invest in the future of CAC's mission and work, twice per year, we invite your financial support. To contribute, go to cac.org donate to make a gift. Thank you so much. Welcome to Season 1 of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr, exploring the core themes of his new book, The Universal Christ. As mentioned previously, this podcast is recorded on the grounds of the Center for Action and Contemplation and may contain the quirky sounds of our neighborhood and setting. We are your hosts. I'm Paul Swanson. And Bree Stoner. We're staff members of the Center for Action and Contemplation and students of this contemplative path, trying our best to live the wisdom of this tradition amidst washing dishes, broken hearts, and the shifting state of our world. This will be the second of 12 weekly episodes. Today, we will be discussing the second chapter, Accepting That You Are Accepted, and the third chapter, Revealed In Us As Us. We step into some big conversations on the image of God and take the thread from the first episode a step further in distilling Jesus and the Christ. And with that, let's get started. I'm kind of curious, Richard, who were some of your greatest mentors and did you drive them nuts like we drive you nuts? Well, first of all, you do not drive me <laughs> nuts. Uh, you mean in in my world vision, huh? Yeah, just, just in your story, the unfolding manifestation of this insight of mm-hmm. the universal Christ and where you are today. You know, I, I have to admit most of them were theoretical inspirations. In other words, lives of saints. Mm. They weren't necessarily people standing right next to me. Mm. But I was exposed for, you know, my 13 years of formal education to that that kind of literature and those kind of biographies and that kind of theology that just... And I, I knew when... Usually, and that's still true, I knew in the first three pages of a book whether this was going to ring true, Hmm. whether this person had something to say. And I don't even know how I know that. I think a lot of people are this way. It's, It's an intuition. It's a recognition of unique vocabulary. Uh, Oh, yeah, this one is going to take me to a new place. But there's no... You know, you've heard me mention, of course, Carl Rahner, St. Francis. Uh, one that was a personal friend was Henry Nouwen. Uh, he died way too young. But I totally enjoyed his presence. Even though, and this is no revealing of any secret, he was a, more than a bit neurotic. Mm-hmm. This is told in all of his biographies. So I was happy to know that I didn't need completely sane people to be happy with. But because I could see his sincerity, mm-hmm. his earnestness, his, his desire to be a loving person, his eccentricity, his neuroticism didn't bother me too much. Mm-hmm. It was wonderful. But we do that, don't we? We like we like to set up our mentors, yeah. kind of in a similar way in which we've set up God. This this image yeah. out there, up there somewhere, perfect and separate, and you know, and separate. Yeah, I, I recently found. I was telling Paul, I found. <laughs> oh my God, I found my revelation charts, which you may wonder what that is. The it's book of Revelation? Basically, yep, oh, which as a child God. I had to chart out in drawing <laughs> oh. the different stages of the end of the world. <laughs> oh my God. And of course all my images of God were this up in the sky, separate yeah. from us, and usually male, angry, and an old man. 
And so I'm curious, when did your image of God begin to shift mm. away from even just a man in the sky mm. or a male entity? Yeah. You know, I'd have to say it was as late as the late 60s mm. when I finally was being taught good theology and good scripture. It was after the reforming Vatican Council and... Uh, I just delighted in the Bible. I just read it. I think I, re I read it in those four years, at least from cover to cover once, but played with it a lot more than that. And just finding all the passages where, of course I was being guided by good scholars, but where God was not male, God was not violent, God was not um, a punitive, and at that point, after being raised as a pre-Vatican II Catholic with a very punitive God, it was just like, Eureka, hmm. could this be true? If it is, let me preach it. Little did I think I would get so many chances to do just that, to tell other people what I had discovered. But then it just kept confirming, especially by the reading of the writings of mystics. And that's what made me idealize the mystics so much. You know, these people are in a different category than everybody else. Typical mainline theology was still dualistic, retributive, law, 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 finding out how to understand the law better, as if it could get you there. So it was gradual. But it, I would say it began in the late 60s, when the whole country, of course, was longing for some mercy because of the Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Movement, the revelation of how we treated the poor. So there was a longing for a merciful God in a lot of us. And that's, of course, continued till our time. In your book, Richard, you talk about how we focus on the cozy and lost the cosmic in, in the, the process of Christianity's unfolding and mm. that we overemphasize the personal Jesus over the Christ. Yes. Can you share how that loss happened? How that loss happened? Well, let me first give a sympathetic interpretation. Mm -hmm. You know, I do believe the art of friendship is, is one of the greatest schools, one of the most necessary schools. We do have to have people who mirror us properly, benevolently. And so I can see why we wanted to make God into the friend writ large, you know, the ultimate friend. That's good. That's necessary. So you don't want to dismiss it too lightly. But you used an interesting word there. I don't know if you got that from me. Cozy. When it became that he wasn't just the universal friend. He was the American friend who reflected all of our wars. Uh, you know, like the Christ in the book of Revelation with the sword yeah. coming out of his mouth. Oh, yeah. Where did this come from? He's your friend, but... He's validating all of the worst aspects of civilization because he isn't complimented by a universal Christ. It's, it's a Jesus made small. So it was a cozy friendship. It was a self-serving friendship. In my world, he happened to be Roman Catholic, mm. you know, and established the whole hierarchical system. <laughs> We just can't see those things when we first learn them. So friendship is good, but friendship defined as mirroring of my small self. That's not a good mirroring. Mm. We all like to be mirrored, but we're talking about the ultimate mirror, which means he's mirroring Hindus and black people in Africa and gay people mm -hmm. and handicapped people. Oh. Well, I don't know if I want that mirror. You know, mm. that's what the ego first says. So um, it's good and bad. We need friendship, if you want to call that a cozy Jesus. But when it persists in that coziness too long, 
and you never see people moving out of their Mississippi culture or Mississippi white culture or Mississippi Christian culture, just to pick on one state, you could pick on any, then you have every good reason to question, this isn't Jesus you're meeting. You're meeting yourself in a hall of mirrors and calling it Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And with that, how, how do we develop the capacity to have a practice of love of Jesus and love of the Christ? How do we love both? Is yeah, that what you're saying? Yeah, since we've so much focused on, or maybe it's just in yeah. particularly hey. modern traditions, focused on the personal, yeah, loving how, the personal Jesus. How do we Jesus. move beyond Jesus is my boyfriend? Yeah, yeah. But like, without but losing Jesus. It, yeah, yeah. Without, like, without losing the connection to that personal. Well, the point I try to make in the book, I still feel like should, could do it much better, uh, but I don't know how, Hmm. is how do you let the personal lead you to the universal? Hmm. Instead of stopping at the personal, because that gives so much ego consolation. And that's almost a question of maturity. A more mature person needs bigger seeing as they uh, move into bigger worlds. Now, if you never move into bigger worlds, you never experience that need, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Why is it I can't love handicapped people? Why is it I can't love uh, people of a different religion? Well, you've never had a friend there at the personal level. You've never taken the time to befriend someone at the personal level. So I think Teilhard de Chardin said the most personal, is the most universal. That's excellent. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. But what we call personal is more cozy personalism, mm-hmm. cutesy friendship of people who validate my, you know, my kind of Valentine world, mm-hmm. where um, we exchange equally silly Valentines. But to enter to a world where someone doesn't even know about Valentine's, doesn't know how to to play my game, who doesn't throw it back to me the way I want it thrown back, that's when your education begins. Mm. Now, if you never submit to that education, I think you can remain a rather nice person. Now, I do mean nice. Yeah. But it's just so self-serving. And we've all been in little towns where... Boy, those people are friendly, mm-hmm. you know. But you really wonder, and I don't know, if I had a black face and was a poor man, would I get that same friendliness? Mm-hmm. You really wonder. Mm-hmm. And that's what Jesus meant when he said in several, you were taught love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's, that's what all lower level religion, in effect, teaches. Yeah, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It doesn't know it's teaching that. But unless it moves to the universal, it does. Mm-hmm. Now that's what I'm calling Jesus' religion without the universal Christ, where Jesus uh, is allowed to be made small to fit my lens, mm-hmm. and there's no universal notion that blows that to bits. Mm-hmm. You know, right? There's a certain safety that that, yeah. that that the small Jesus world provides, in that I can live my nice life, mm-hmm. have my nice things give those nice things to my nice kids and on and on we go. But then, but so then, true. you know, then I can ignore like mm. what's actually happening what's in our actually world right happening. now yes. or the needs that are yeah. right there. And that appears to be the majority of Christianity yeah. in every culture, not just ours. Mm-hmm. You know, I just taught in Europe much of the summer and yeah, same thing there. You know, Christianity is a country club of select people. It self-identifies as such. Mm. But it isn't known for building bridges to other groups. Mm. Yeah, that's such a, a telltale, right? Like, I feel like what you're saying is Jesus as the gateway or the door to the universal. Mm. And when a, a group that calls itself Christians kind of hunkers down and draws a clear distinction, yeah. it, there's no gateway to the universal. I'm glad you used that word gate. I am the gate. Mm. We made him into a wall, into a hardened silo, Mm. more than a gate. This is making me think, you know, this gateway from the personal to the universal. 
it's helpful for me to think about that in terms of prayer mm. because I think I've had a hard time um, even since I discovered the mystics and have been practicing contemplation, making sense out of how do I pray or mm. who am I praying to? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, who do, you, who do you pray to, Richard? What, is, what does that look like for you? And what's the connection for the personal universal peace? Mm. Well, well, there's many levels to my prayer at this point. Most of the day is this deep desire to rest, not to make an occasional foray into unitive consciousness, but to rest in unitive consciousness as much of the day as possible. Mm -hmm. It's rather hard to do with things that are constantly snagging you, grabbing your attention, your motivation, your emotions. But that's my primary prayer, mm. Prime, my primal speech as one author calls it, learning how to rest in God, to use that language. Now, I wrote a piece on this last year, I think sometime. I'm finding that as I get older, a returning to what I did more easily as a little boy, and that's also the need to talk directly to someone who is a catcher's mitt. Mm. <laughs> I, I like to pitch and know that it's being caught. Mm. That I'm not talking anonymously. I'm not talking to an empty universe. I'm talking to an active presence that wants to receive me. And I find, and this might just be my personality, that I'm needing to return to that. And I've seen a certain I'm going to use the word coldness and dryness emerge in people who are above that or beyond that. Yeah. No, I don't talk to a personal God. Mm -hmm. I know it became too cozy. Yeah. I know it became too sweet and too uh, manipulative and all. That's all true. But boy, you can have the big field of unitive consciousness, you know, presence 24 hours a day as if I live that. But until you... You choose the presence by addressing it, mm. or it, allowing the presence to, to talk back to you. I don't think it becomes warm or alive. Or, or incarnate in a way. Or incarnate, that's a good, yeah. it's, it's the form that incarnation takes mm. uh, to bring the universal to the specific. Mm. Yeah. To bring the big picture to right here, right now. I can I can really feel that, how Good. the pendulum has kind of swung for me, mm. you know, from that very cozy to then, mm. you know, no, 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 I only, no. I only meditate. <laughs> but now there is yeah. that desire again. You know, Paul and I were talking about prayer yesterday, and sometimes it just feels like an occasional inward glance of my soul mm. that just says, help. I, yes, I, I can't yes. do this alone. And that feels... Yes. Like it's not directed to some kind of cosmic. No, it's yeah. very it's personal. Very center to center, yeah. subject to subject. Yes. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. Thank you for understanding it. And I, I am sometimes in the presence of people who will pray from their heart without any embarrassment, without any thinking they're artificial. And I envy because, darn, I used to be that way. Hmm. <laughs> I envy that. So I'm, I'm allowing myself to practice it more mm. and not to live in some false sophistication. Yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful that that was a part of my formation of the church mm. that I grew up in. Mm. And, you know, I was really taught to have faith in Christ. Yes. And then as I've, you know, worked with your book and you talk about having how that leads you into having the faith of Christ. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to what that distinction now, is between the two? I think it begins to happen when you stop relating. Now, here's almost talking on the other side of what we just said, but they're both true. Yeah. Talking to God as an object over there, that's faith in Christ. When you start experiencing the flow happening in you, through you, as you, in spite of you, you eventually gain the confidence to say, this 
is Christ. And this is the mind of Christ. This is an alternative mind. Because when I live in this mind and allow this mind and allow this flow, it feels healing. It feels joyful. It feels, again, the fruits of the Spirit. Mm. You've got to always look for the fruits of the Spirit. When you see the fruits, uh, I think you you find yourself unafraid to say, my gosh, I am Christ. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it seems so presumptuous at first. Right. You know, uh, but that's the realization of the saints and the mystics. I live no longer, not I. I live no longer, not I. But Christ lives in me, and I live in Christ. That's where grace leads you. So it's, it's the movement from subject to object to subject to subject. Mm-hmm. Where you're, you're a, a conduit of the flow. You're not initiating it. You can stop it, though. Isn't that interesting? You can stop it. You can't really initiate it. You you can say yes to it. You can allow it. You can enjoy it, this flow. You can name it as Christ. You don't have to. But what you discover by doing it is that negativity, hatred, judgmentalism stops it. Hmm. When you will not allow to your yourself to be gracious toward that other mm. and to know it subject to subject. Whenever you want to objectify anything or anybody, mm. it's it's the nature of the capitalist beast that once everything is an object of consumption, mm. an object for profit. And that's why I feel it necessary. I know it offends some people to critique the capitalist mind. Mm. I'm not saying capitalism is inherently evil. It's brought much good to this earth. But it also brought a mindset of the manipulation of reality for private purpose. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're saying is objectification of reality. We do it with animals. We do it with the planet itself, and it is uh, the, the price we've paid for. For I have to call it capitalism. I haven't found a better word mm-hmm. to name this worldview, and the fact that people are so defensive when you say that. Yeah. So hard. defensive, almost more than issues of race and issues of gender, and our own customer service. Department tells me that. Mm-hmm. When you critique capitalism, the hate calls come in. Oh, yeah, know? people don't like that. That reveals that it's shadow. Mm-hmm. When you're that defensive, you, are you telling me it is above criticism? Mm-hmm. Are you actually saying that to me? <laughs> and you call yourself a Christian, and you're saying anything that is not God is above criticism, and a system created in the last thousand years which has overtaken the West, is now your God. Mm. Um, You almost have to say that to people. Mm. And I have to a few on the road. Mm. And they have no answer to it. Mm. When you can't face something, uh, uh, something's dark side, you know you're dealing with the shadow self. The shadow part of something else. Sorry. Yeah, no, I I, I think that that's, um, that inability to critique something is part of what plagues us in the christian tradition and i want to bring up two hot button topics that many people get riled up about when we talk about the universal christ and that's one pantheism this fear Mm -hmm. you know that we are somehow claiming that god God is you know the tree or that Mm -hmm. i am god Mm -hmm. but then also universalism and i wondered if you could unpack why are those so triggering for for people of, the, of our of our faith to explore or be open minded about? I hope this isn't unfair, but just to narrow the field, it is more triggering for people who are raised in idolatry of written words, mm. <laughs> which we call Protestants. <laughs> <laughs> they um, uh, forgive real. me for using the word idolatry, <laughs> but they so over localized 
first in the body of Jesus, but then in the word of God. Mm. Once the written word uh, that can only has only been able to be reproduced for 500 years now became a substitute for, for immediate experience, you didn't realize that you rode on a conveyor belt for 500 years, forgive me for saying you, we, because we did too, of overly honoring the part instead of the whole, mm-hmm. the medium instead of the message. Uh, all things are words of God, of mm-hmm. course. The word became flesh. That's scripture. I don't need to tell. Uh, John 1.14. And the early fathers of the church, particularly in the East, however, really understood that as, as a not accidental statement, that it doesn't say the word became Jesus. Jesus is not mentioned in the prologue till verse 17. You know, uh, it's always this generic idea of God taking on materiality. Now, that's the mystical mind that can know that, the mind we called it was the sacramental mind. I don't know if sacraments were defined for you that way, but the sacrament was a concrete thing that led you to the universal thing, a a momentary instance of what is everywhere true. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many Catholics understood it that way, but we were told it is a sacramental universe. So it wasn't as big a leap for us to uh, speak of things and dogs and trees. Did you see that series on the, on the internet a few years ago? There, there was this war between a Catholic and a Protestant church. I think it was in Minnesota. Oh, really? in and they both had a poster out in front. And the Catholics were saying, God loves animals too. And the Protestant, no, he doesn't. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I bet you can still find it. It went on for months. Oh my gosh. This, and I'm not trying to pick on Protestants, but it was, they over localized the presence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It wasn't a sacramental universe. So when I come along and talk about universalism, or what was the other word you brought up? Pantheism. Uh, Pantheism, Mm -hmm. yeah. And of course, I would, and you know what I'm going to say, make a very important distinction. Yeah. I, do, I am not a pantheist that God equals all things, all things equal God. It's clear that I'm not the center of the universe, that tree is not the center of the universe, but that it participates, mm-hmm. its DNA came forth from the center, from the source. That's what I'm saying. Now that's called panentheism in Greek. God in all things, but you know, a little bit of God goes a long way. (laughs) Really, all you need is the divine DNA in every creature, and it's worth kissing it. Mm -hmm. It's worth honoring it. How can anybody disagree with that? But it's almost like they want a straw man that they can shoot down, accuse you of being a pantheist. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, again, Uh, the word universal. That happens to be the word Catholic. And that the church in the second century already took that name to itself without feeling it was heretical. Mm. (laughs) The one holy Catholic, small c, I admit, shows we weren't afraid of what we now call as if it's something terrible. You're a universalist. They'll come up and accuse me of it. Like I'm supposed to wither <laughs> in front of them. Are you a universalist, Richard? And I say, yeah, I'm a Catholic. Uh, if, if it's true, well, you know what I'm going to say. If it's true, it's got to be true everywhere. Mm-hmm. It can't just be Protestant truth, Catholic truth, American truth, Iranian truth. Truth is truth is truth. And we are the people who say we're, we're monotheists. There's one God, one God who created all things. If there's one God who created all things, then we should be the first to be universalists. Mm. Mm. That everything carries the divine imprint. Mm. So it's, it's usually just get over the shock of it. The only reason it's shocking to you is you were never told it before. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm telling you now. If you accept the universal Christ or Christ, 
who you were chosen in from the beginning, before the world was created, uh, then it's all one template, one pattern, one reality, mm. one matter and spirit amalgam uh, that reveals everything. So um, it's largely getting over the shock, once they get over the shock. And once I pick on my own group a little and say, I admit we were Roman Catholics more than Catholics. Mm. Oh, okay. You're criticizing your group. Now I can hear it. You were pretty Roman. Yes, we were. Yeah. But we're, we're the, the noun was Catholic. Roman was mm. the adjective. And that's often the case. You let the adjective overtake the noun. You know, you were just mm. quoting John and talking about that Jesus doesn't appear until, I think you said 17 verses. Verse then? 17. Verse of 17. The prologue, John. Yeah. So as we approach scripture, the very last line. Yeah. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So as we approach scripture um, and the gospels, how do you discern what is coming from Jesus of Nazareth mm. and what is coming from mm. the universal Christ? That is so helpful if you can answer that for yourself well. Mm. In, in quick answer, uh, and this could help you uh, discern the difference in general. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are Jesus. John's gospel is Christ in general. That, and that works. Now, once you can get the eyes to see that, you'll see that the, the one who's talking in John's gospel is always making declarative, dogmatic, absolute, universal statements. I am the gate. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am, what are, there's a whole bunch of them. They're all lovely. Mm. But you know, frankly, to many non-believers in particular, even some Christians, his talking like that, they say he's always bragging. You know, <laughs> or being it, exclusive. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like he's saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. Well, once you know this is the universal truth speaking, uh, it's an inclusive notion, not an exclusive notion. Yeah. He's naming reality, the truth that is always true, everywhere, all the time, in India and China and Africa and Mississippi. Okay, uh, I can hear every one of those statements. Mm-hmm. You know? This is a, a really open gate. You know, it's the keyless gate. There's no key. It's just open. In fact, the verse says, through which you can walk in and out, which to me is very telling, almost giving us permission. I don't need to belong all the time. Mm. Maybe I can. I know many of the best Catholics I know left the church for five years, gave up on the whole thing, you know, and then re-meet it as an adult. Mm. I think that's happened to a lot of evangelicals too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Jesus is, uh, is always talking in concrete, human, historical, this moments. And that's almost embarrassing to a lot of people. That it's one little leper on one little road, one little widow with one dying son, uh, Jesus brings this whole universal truth to individual caring, mm. to a moment of encounter. And isn't it interesting that we needed three of those Gospels? Because we like highly theoretical, conceptual Christ stories mm. that we can make a dogma out of, that we can make, unfortunately, uh, dogmatic statements out of that can exclude other people because we didn't understand the Christ. That only one of the Gospels needed to be the Christ. Mm. You do not hear Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke walking around making many, some could be interpreted that way, but many universal doctrinal statements. He just doesn't. He's talking about right here, this woman, this situation, which gives us permission, I think, to to be pastoral, if mm. I can put it that mm. way, to be personal. Yeah, to be personal, to be, okay, I know all the big theories. Right now, this woman has not been to church in 10 years. 
She doesn't believe like I do, but I can still treat her with respect. Mm. So this is amazing that we said we believed in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we sure didn't pattern ourselves right. on Jesus' patterns because mm. we didn't see it as the pattern, I guess, that you do know he's breaking the rules right now, his own Jewish rules. Right. He's uh, making an exception to the universal to minister to the concrete mm. again and again mm. and again. But of course, if you weren't raised to see Jesus as Jewish, you didn't know the universal, that he's not supposed to touch a leper. He's not supposed to care about non-Jews. He's not supposed to work on Saturday. We aren't shocked by what's supposed to shock us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Yeah. Yeah. That's so helpful. It is helpful. Yeah. It, really it just really clarifies so much. Yeah. yeah. I think too, you know, the there's permission for like the the smallness of the uh, the permission to be to live yeah. large love in small ways oh, in the synoptic beautiful. gospels. Yes. And then as you talk about how Christ is represented in John, and that really expands uh, the way, the truth, and the life. Mm. Can you? And this is a, a question I know that gets asked of you a lot. It just and got asked this week and again. Did you? It's often in the first ten minutes. Is it really? Isn't that because people are so aware that quote John fourteen six mm. has been used to exclude people, condemn people, mm-hmm. to make me feel included? Mm. I am the Jesus believer. We interpret it from the tribal level of consciousness. About that religion is all about belonging and about group and about joining. Mm. Come join my club. Now, if that's your premise that you're operating on, that is the way you'll hear it. It's all about belonging to the right club and Jesus saying, I got the true club. His very notion of the Father, which is used in that same verse, or the next verse, no one comes to the Father except through me, is revealed as a universal God. (laughs) Not just the God of the Jews, but the God of creation. So he's saying you can't get to the universal unless you put together matter and spirit, which is encountering the Christ. Every time you find the material to reveal spirit, every time you find spirit hidden in one material moment, you have met the Christ and you're on your path toward the Father. Mm. But uh, that has nothing to do with joining a group, nothing to do with belonging to my group. But that's the way we hear it, of course. Well, I'm just thinking about that, that it's curious that we don't pattern our faith tradition by the very example of Jesus of radical inclusivity. Why isn't why isn't that the first thing why? that we learn or are given to to follow as an example? Here's my interpretation. I think, and this is understandable in terms of pedagogy and human growth, you first need to feel special. So Yahweh did that for the people Israel. He made them feel special, not so they could walk around and say we're special, although they have to do that for a while, mm. just like your children do. And you, none of you would hesitate to tell your children how special and wonderful they are. But the final effect, if that is internalized, is you have a, an excess of self-confidence. You have an excess of givenness to know how to see, well, you know what? She's special too. <laughs> That's grace, you know. So uh, Paul talks about this, if I remember right, in Romans 11, where he insists that God did choose his people, the Jews, but that their job was therefore to pass on that election to all the nations of the earth. Mm-hmm. And he criticized them that they were not doing it. They simply became an ethnic religion in his judgment and kept saying how special it was to be a Jew. But I can't criticize that as a Catholic because we did exactly the same thing. (laughs) And then you evangelicals imitated us and you did exactly the same thing. Aren't we special? Which means we didn't really internalize Mm. 
the, the experience of favor or election or grace or specialness. When you know it was given to me undeserved, mm-hmm. you've got to absorb that undeserved experience. Yeah. Then how can I create any criteria for deservedness over there? It's always undeserved. Mm-hmm. It's by definition. As Paul says in Second Ephesians, uh, uh, undeserved. That's what it means to be grace. Mm-hmm. So you've got to get out of this whole world of meritocracy. Mm. Normally the people that happens in is people who've been forgiven for something they really are ashamed of or hate themselves for. Until you've experienced undeserved forgiveness mm. from someone you expected to just nail you to the wall. Mm. <laughs> and they don't do it. That opens up the soul space to experience grace Mm. more quicker than almost anything else. And that's why we often say the sinner, the prostitute, the drunkard, the tax collector has the head start in understanding the gospel. And goody two shoes, you know, who's always done it right, he or she really it often takes them a long time to get there. Just mm. put it that way. Yeah. yeah. That exclusive mindset is part of what I feel like shifts so much with this idea of the universal Christ. Mm. Because it includes everyone and everybody. And I think I'm, I'm one of many for whom uh, there's been a loss of faith in the institutional church. Yeah. And I wonder, what would Christianity look like if we really did adopt mm. this paradigm of this kind of incarnational worldview? Hmm. What would change in the church? I would think it'd become more a service station or or what Pope Francis calls a a field hospital on the edge of the battlefield. Instead of a place that conducts services, Mm -hmm. a service station where anybody can stop in and say, I need help. I got a flat tire, I need gas. And we disconnect ourselves from this belonging thing. Mm-hmm. Now, I know we all need a family. I know we all need community. So I don't want to be naive about that. But, you know, it's almost like this has become a, a feverish need because the nuclear family has been so neglected mm-hmm. or so fallen apart that now we need family down uh, at the church corner. Mm. Uh, maybe that need uh, could be a little less if we knew there were caring people uh, at the service station and we weren't all alone. Now, I know this risks creating entirely utilitarian people who just come when they need a fix. Mm. But the 12-step program seems to have given us a different model. Yeah. That yes, people do come when they need a fix, but the depth of their woundedness, despair, self-hatred, even self-loathing, very often, not always, gives them an inherent desire to help other people, mm. to be a sponsor for other people. And their their whole model is... Yeah. is is not hierarchical. I mean, like that's what yeah, I think of is yeah. would would these very structures of how we hold power shift yeah. when we actually consider Christ and everyone and everything, mm-hmm. you know, it kind of flattens our whole Flat, love of yeah. hierarchy. It will allow other people to be Christ for us and they don't have to be dressed up or have a title yeah. or educated in a fancy university or seminary. But we don't allow the other people to be Christ. Mm. And wouldn't the wounded person draw the Christ mystery out of us, between us, much more than the ordained person? And uh, you can't help but wonder if if God isn't allowing the ordained phenomenon as good as it can be in some settings, uh, but to be roundly humiliated. Mm. So we start looking in other places for Christ. Mm. Uh, I think that's inevitable. We're never going to recover from this pedophilia crisis mm. in the Catholic Church. Mm. 
and it's having the effect of flattening hierarchies in all yeah, and all institutions. It's being yeah. mirrored in the in the Protestant tradition with how many accusations of abuse of power and in the pastors and um, sexual offenses. And so, yeah, that seems to be part of what I find so life-giving and hopeful about the universal Christ is that maybe maybe there could be a way of, of being Christian that, that doesn't rely on these power on structures. Experts. Yeah. yeah. Because that's what it is, creating an expert class. You know, the word clergy comes from kleros, which means the separated ones, you know, Mm. the separated ones. Why do we need to create this group? Now, I know I couldn't be talking now if I hadn't separated myself and gotten this magnificent education from the Franciscans. So I'm sure we're always going to need teachers and people who have the time to educate themselves, Mm -hmm. but... This creating a different class that have an inherent authority wasn't uh, the gospel warning us against that by how often it uses the words, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law as a word that was coterminous Mm. with phoniness. Mm. I mean, we were prepared, (laughs) prepared to see this and we didn't. Because yeah. we said, well, no, that's the Jews. They were phony, but not us. Now we see. Well, well for me, from my men's work, it comes down to power. Mm-hmm. That so few males can handle power. Unless they've made journeys of powerlessness. And that was an initiation. To take a male on a necessary journey of powerlessness. Okay, now we can give him power. Mm. If you look at the three temptations of Jesus before he begins his public ministry, they're all three temptations to the misuse of power. Look at our politics, look at our religion. Um, I hope we just elect loads of women in the next season. What a great idea. (laughs) (laughs) To just make this point. And you know, I'm not, there's plenty of women who are into power too. Absolutely. But still, let's give them a chance Mm -hmm. at least. Mm -hmm. We've pretty much flubbed it up from our side consistently. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, thinking about um, the the phrase that came to mind, which I've never thought of, like an incarnational exchange um, that could happen when you receive something to pass it on. Yeah. And thinking how incarnation is not a one-time event, but something that is continual and ongoing. Yes, yes, yes. Why do you think that's important for us to understand? You know, I think that's what we were hinting at. We spoke of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That implies ongoing growth. But, you know, almost all of Christianity was formulated outside of an evolutionary consciousness. And I use the word evolution just coterminous with growth. Mm -hmm. If you're going to talk about growth, you're talking about evolution. Change. Use those words interchangeably, if you will. But the, the Christianity we were educated in was transactional, not growth oriented, not change oriented, not transformational. Transactional instead of transformational. So in those are your categories, how do we get the right transaction, make the right decision for Jesus, or make the first communion? You really don't understand change and growth. Uh, It doesn't really have to affect me in any on the level that we would now call consciousness. But let's be fair. Even that word consciousness wasn't roundly used till the last hundred years. Right. So it was just the soul. And the mm-hmm. soul was a substance. The soul was an object. The soul was a thing mm-hmm. that you saved. It wasn't awakened. It wasn't educated. Mm-hmm. It wasn't enlightened. It was saved. <laughs> Do you feel the transactional yeah. nature of that? So um, I, I cannot blame this on any particular group. It's, it's where the human mind was. And the human mind only in the last, really, 50 years has come to use words like growth, change, evolution, consciousness. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're finally ready to, to think transformationally 
instead of just transactionally. Mm. Mm. Did I answer? Yeah, you're speaking to how the the language is catching up to what we've already seen occurring. Yes, Mm. very good. Yeah, Mm. our language is catching up with it, and we almost got to adjust to the language and realize what it implies. Yes. Evolution implies change. We didn't think we had to change. We just thought we had to join. Mm. Mm. Can you feel it? Mm-hmm. The jo- shift. Yeah. yeah. Join the group. Okay, you're in now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I appreciate that you talk about uh, Paul's experience of the Christ as uh, teaching us how to trust our own Christ experience. And... I think for many of us who've been so burned by the church or maybe are taking some of that exodus time as you described earlier, it's hard to not be cynical about our yeah. own experiences um, or mm. even attribute them to to the Christ or you know you just talked about how our words need to catch up with our with mm. our frameworks with our yeah. our our paradigms right and and yeah. much of our religious language is kind of stuck back here in a different cosmology, if you will and so I guess I want to know how how do we trust our experiences mm-hmm. when to give it religious language sometimes feels like it's taking you out. Yeah, uh, of does the that moment. make sense? Yeah. So, boy, that's true. You know, the self we were told to trust or taught to trust was usually the false self. Mm-hmm. <laughs> trust yourself. That meant that you can play the violin or you can swim or right. all of which is good, you know. But there's almost no education in trusting the true self. Mm. We don't, again, we don't have language for that, uh, which is really the language of faith. Uh, how to honor and recognize. Uh, you obviously heard me say that both Jesus and Paul somehow honored their inner personal experience against their own Jewish tradition. Mm. And, in Paul's case, the newly found Christian tradition. It's amazing that we could have two people who had such confidence in their true self in God. I and the Father are one, in Jesus' language. Maybe it's because we waste so much time Uh, trusting that we're the best swimmer or Mm. the best Mm. violin player. We want to get on, uh, you know, America's Got Talent, which is lovely. Is that a secret dream? (laughs) (laughs) Always always wanted to be there. It's it's too much affirmation of the passing self. Mm. When you put all your energy into trusting that which is not objective, Mm -hmm. but passing, Mm -hmm. is not your your soul or your substance, but merely your style. Or achievements or positioning. We've we've created a world that is almost inherently uh, moving toward superficiality, Mm -hmm. living on the surface. That I'm great because I'm on America's Got Talent. Mm -hmm. So does that keep us then, like that superficiality, does that keep us from being able to have those authentic Christ experiences? I think so. Okay, yeah. I really think it does. You know, it has to do with where you place your attention. Hmm. And if your attention is all on fame, hmm. the the horizontal world of, of mutual admiration, I know God isn't up there, but we use that language, of the vertical being named apart from how anybody thinks about you. Mm. There's got to be some place you allow that to be done. Mm. And what other people think, other people's opinion of you, is not your primary nomenclature and Mm self-image. We have created a very unstable self. You know, very secular books like Charles Taylor, you know, the, The Secular Self, I think. He said, this is the only self left in the West, mm-hmm. is this. And what we meant by the religious self was a self that was not defined horizontally, but vertically. Mm-hmm. And when we can allow that to happen, there's a very solid identity there. Mm-hmm. It isn't fragile. It doesn't come and go by the recent political correctness mm-hmm. or by someone hating you. 
Now we have people fall apart or kill because someone didn't love them. Wow, that's fragile. Mm. Oh, what a shame. I don't say that with disdain. Right. I say that with sympathy. That every day you're waking up insecure, Mm -hmm. insecure. I need to be noticed. I need to be noticed. What a shame. Yeah. Mm. Trying to imagine risking love. Mm. How could you risk the love in a when you there, there's that that sphere of insecurity that you're yes. in? Not, let alone loving another person, but mm. loving God. Like, yes, you're living out of a worldview of scarcity mm-hmm. where there's never enough of me. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is why I've told you three of the weddings I had the the groom fa- uh, fainted. <laughs> uh, uh, the male in particular is more guarded and sur- uh, surrounded by boundaries than most women. The thought, there's not enough of me to give to one woman for the rest of my life mm-hmm. or the children that might come from this. It's a very insubstantial self, very insecure self. I'm actually surprised that 50% of marriages, is that the present number, uh, don't end so. in divorce? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful that it's even 50%. Mm-hmm. You know, in closing, we like to ask you this question. I'm going to put a little spin on it. All right. Um, I, I really appreciate that you talk about how the universal Christ experience is in sadness or in fullness. So, you know, with with our world that has been living out of such a... Mm. That is still living and, and wanting us to live in that superficial self mm. that yeah. only seeks happiness as its goal... How have you... Personal, private right. happiness. Right. As yeah. if that could exist. Right. Um, what <laughs> Go would, ahead, I'm sorry. No, no. What would yeah. be an example of your experience of the universal Christ today in a way that embraced kind of the wholeness, the depth, that maybe mm. it wasn't just about happiness? You know, what, what was a more complex experience mm. of the universal Christ for you? You know what it's been recently... Um, when I'm tempted, and I am like all people are, to self-pity or feeling sorry for myself, or this is a hard day, or why do I have to do this, all those voices. When I can move from I, Richard, to we, humanity, mm. that I am able now to consciously hold together with other people who really are depressed today, who really are unjustly imprisoned or dying from cancer or whatever, once I can move from I to we, and maybe it's just giving a meaning to human suffering, but then I, I can always bear it. There's a meaning to, to my sadness. Mm-hmm. This is the universal sadness. Mm-hmm. There's one chapter in the book on that, the one lump cha- chapter. That really works for me. W- when it's my sadness, and I, poor me, <laughs> I have to walk over and dress up and have mass together for this lady who's going to fall in front of me. <laughs> I'm feeling sorry all for myself, all the things I don't like about having daily mass. Mm. And it's all, it all just compounds. Mm. Mm. And then, then when I can be shocked into, you realize you're about to ritualize communion. Mm. And you're not standing there in persona Richard, but in persona Christ. Mm. And you're holding all the sadness, all the self-pity. People who really deserve self-pity. Then my little self-pity falls away Mm -hmm. so that's the only way i know how to do it presently that's what's working for me is to universalize it paul has a line in colossians to make up in our own bodies the suffering that still has to be undergone by christ what a line to make up in our own bodies the suffering that still has to be there's somehow a collective sharing in the mystery of joy and the mystery of suffering Mm -hmm as you said it. But suffering pushes us more. I, I, it's easier to do with joy. Oh, I'm enjoying the happiness of all the world. But even that, to get beyond yours and to connect your happiness to other mothers, to other fathers, uh, 
that really expands it. Mm. You, you feel you're holding on to something much more solid. And your, your happiness can pass in two minutes. But I'm still connected to the new mother who's just seeing her baby for the first time, you know, or whatever it might be. Mm. Thank you, Richard. Thanks, Richard. You're welcome. So it's always moving from I to we. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Conversion is always moving from I to we. That's so helpful. It is. Expansive. Yeah. yeah. So thank you for letting me end on that. Yeah, yeah thank you. The beautiful music you're listening to is provided by Bird Talker. Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, thanks to the generosity of our donors. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. If you want to hear more about these ideas as part of an online community, consider participating in the live webcast of our spring conference, March 28th through the 31st. For details and to register, visit cac.org events. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.